0: worshiper here today if you have your scriptures would you turn with me to John's gospel John chapter 15 verses 1 to 11 if you're visiting with us for the first time we especially welcome you as well may God's blessings be upon you in this new year we have been studying through John's gospel looking for panting after glimpses of God's glory we want to behold his glory. And surely, as the book moves towards its inevitable completion with the work of Jesus Christ and the cross, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, we have here the final lessons, truths that he gives to this small band of brothers, the disciples. Judas has exited stage left. And into this group of 11, the Lord Jesus Christ pours out his heart. He truths them in love. He prepares them for his inevitable departure. He tells them what they need to know. And in telling them what they need to know, he's telling us as well. We come this morning to John chapter 15, a passage that is well known to many of us. And right away, just a word of warning— when you come to a familiar passage, one of the challenges is to overcome a kind of contemptuous familiarity. Been there, done that, vine, branches, got it. Heard it way back in Sunday school. Can I plead with you that you would ask of God for fresh eyes to see the wonder of the passage before us? The image that God uses to teach and express dynamic truth about our relationship. So John 15 Verses 1 to 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so that you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is God's word. Father, come now, help us. We're mindful of the ministry of God the Spirit, and so we would ask for it now. You've brought us to this place for this time. Father, you've set before us this truth. We plead that you might feed us with it. Father, even earlier in the service when we thought about the, the challenge of being still before you, that's the challenge for many of us. Our minds are a world with a thousand things, Lord. Work, politics, global events, finance, emotions. Father, we pray that you would slow us down and still us. We understand that the enemy of our souls cannot destroy us, but he can distract us. So, Lord, help us to be all here. Feed us with this bread from heaven. Father, we pray that you would engage our hearts and our minds, our whole beings. I pray, Lord, for an ability to see what is before us. I pray for eyes to see, ears to hear what you want to communicate to your people, your church, your called-out ones. Father, we pray as well that you would bless our dear sister Candy. We we want her back with us, Lord. We want you to touch her and heal her. And we ask for your help. Father, we pray that you would strengthen her body. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Relationships are all the rage these days. How to have them, find them, maintain them, get out of them, benefit from them how to determine if they are healthy or not. In Baba College, I had to read Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It was required reading for one class, if you can believe that. I thought it was odd because it wasn't a Christian book. But as I dove into it, I realized that portions of the book, in fact, large portions of the book, literally could have been lifted out of the book of Proverbs or the book of Psalms, or portions of the Gospels. It should come as no surprise to us that the three-in-one God is the perfect and ultimate source of relationships. How do we relate? How do we relate, first of all, to our maker and our creator, and how do we relate to one another? Well, John 15 addresses the most important and the most vital relationship that Christians can have, our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know it, this is the seventh and final I am statements given to us in the Gospel of John. Do you remember the others? I don't want to ask too deeply. Those ego eimi" me, I am statements, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door... I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And of course, in coming to an I am statement, we're we're coming to a statement in which Jesus is choosing to reveal himself to us in picture form. You ever been with someone and they're trying to explain something to you and you're not getting it and so they take another tact and you're still not getting it and so they say in exasperation, what do I have to do? Draw you a picture to which you say, yeah, please. I don't know what you're talking about. Reality is is that Jesus Christ draws a picture. Because this is such a well-known passage, there is a challenge for us to really see the picture that God declares. To to those of us who who wonder why there is not more fruitfulness in our lives, this passage is a game-changer. To those of us who feel far from Jesus Christ at times, this passage calls us to gather around. To those of us who struggle against the pruner's knife, listen up. I'll make a couple of general observations about the text at a fairly high altitude, and then we'll get into the words of the text as John the Apostle whom Jesus loves gives them to us. First of all this, Jesus uses metaphors to teach. He does it repeatedly throughout his ministry. He uses images. The word metaphor is a kind of transfer from the old French. But the idea is that you you take a symbol, you take a picture, and it shines light on an idea. It takes the abstract and makes it touchable or knowable. It's, It's not unlike even what we'll do later in our service in terms of our communion service. We're taking symbols, word pictures, to express and convey truth. And as the master teacher, no one does this better than Jesus. Think of how many images have already been paraded before us from the Gospel of John. We've got light and water, the roadway, bread, shepherds, sheep, and on and on. So this morning, there is an extended metaphor about a grapevine, and it comes into sharp focus. Now, for the ancients, who were the original readers of this, they they would have understood agrarian matters, agricultural matters, probably far better than many of us. But this becomes a way for Jesus to take them from what they know into what they do not know. For the grapevine imagery, it was interesting for Jewish people to originally hear this because grapevine imagery was all throughout the Old Testament. These eleven men, these men who understand well the, the Jewish faith, they would understand that this is an image that God often employed throughout his ministry to man. They might be thinking about passages like Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 15, Hosea 10. That would come to their mind. The grapevine was an image that God used to speak of the nation of Israel. One that was supposed to be fruitful and one that was supposed to su- supply a sweet-smelling sweet, sweet smelling fruit for the rest of the world. And oh, how they struggled in this. When we Americans think about an eagle, we immediately think about our nation, maybe, or the stars and stripes. It's a kind of shorthand. As Americans, we understand, oh, that's, that's national, that's our nation. Well, that would have been the case. those that were there initially originally hearing this even the magnificent jewish temple in jerusalem was adorned with vines and grapes now there's a question that we have to ask ourselves as we begin in the text were they still in the upper room or had they left the upper room and I read all kinds of fanciful accounts about actually they were at this point moving through the gardens. They do that because of what we hear in verse 31, arise, let us go from here. Not, it's not a hill I want to die on. I think they could have still been in the upper room, but Jesus is using this visual imagery. Others would suggest, no, they're making their way to Gethsemane. I'm not sure how important that is. Suffice it to say is that Jesus effectively uses images. And so, maybe there was a trellis, maybe there were grape vines, maybe there was bustling fruit nearby. They don't know that it's necessary because they understand so well the concept. But Jesus uses metaphors to teach. He uses images to instruct. Pictures and stories have a way That allow us to sneak past dragons as lewis would say it kind of brings in truth on a slant second observation this passage is written to believers this chapter does not tell us how to be a christian but how to be a fruit producing christian doesn't tell us how to be a christian it assumes vital connection abide in me and i in you You're already clean, he tells those. Why can he say that? Because Judas is gone. Now that Judas is absent, all that was present there in that room, if they are still in that room, were gospel men, believers, chosen instruments. So this is a small group study by Jesus to his men. Eleven men that he would soon leave. 11 men that he is upset by telling them that he was going to depart soon and they wouldn't see him anymore. First by death and the cross. After that, resurrection and finally ascension. Jesus has been for his men a bridge over troubled waters. But as he prepares to leave, he prepares them. This is, if you will, necessary truth. This is preparation for Separation. Preparation for separation. He's going to physically depart from them, but he wants them to know that they're still connected. You're not going to see me anymore. I'm going away. Still going to be connected. We're still going to be together. He's truthing them in love. This is an analogy that I hope will bear fruit in our local assembly because though we don't visibly, physically see Jesus, we are connected with the heart of the gospel. That the altogether lovely one has brought us into relationship. Well, I've broken the passage just into two pieces. In verses 1 to 6, I wrote this over it. The vital attachment. The vital attachment. If you want to understand an extended metaphor, a couple of terms help. Jesus identifies himself as the vine. The Father is the vine dresser, and we are the branches. The branches are connected to the vine, and they're tended by the vine dresser, and this is an ongoing work. And I did a lot of reading this past week about vineyards and vines, and not that I'm a specialist now, but I know a little something about how they grow grapes. And it was fascinating to me because what apparently do vineyard keepers traditionally keep the vine at waist height, around 36 to 42 inches. The vine is the trunk that grows out of the ground. It's the branches that spread from there to the left and to the right along the trellis. And what Jesus is telling his men is this, there can be no real fruitfulness in your life if you are not vitally attached to the vine. If the nutrients are not flowing, you're not growing. You ever had a situation where you're taking on some overgrown place and you can't reach it all. And so, what you might do, let's suppose that it's some type of decorative ivy or something like that, not poison ivy, but decorative ivy. And because you can't reach it, you just go along with some snippers and you cut, 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 cut. And you say, You know what? I'm coming back next week. And how much easier it is to get off because. Now it's begun to die and brown. It's no longer vitally connected. You've sapped it from any vitality and strength. And next week when you come out, it certainly won't be as hard to pull off the wall. That's the idea that Jesus is expressing here. That the main subject of this passage is the word abiding. In fact, you find the word abiding in the Greek meno. It's used 10 times in 11 verses. And this is essentially what it means, brothers and sisters. It means to stay, dwell, remain, be constant, be present, be kept, to tarry. It's all about an unbroken connection. If you're looking for another image, not to mix metaphors, but if you've ever seen a group of newlyweds, you realize that they seem to be always connected. They have a little hand connection, always connected. You ever see a mom with small children in a mall? You want to talk about a constant connection? There it is. That's what Jesus is talking about. A constancy of connection. It's it's this repetition that emphasizes our union, our attachment, our connection to our Savior. And it serves for us a great question. How connected am I to Jesus Christ, the vine? Verse 1 powerfully reminds us that our only source to a spiritually healthy life is our connection to Jesus Christ. Then in verse 2 we learn that the the Father prunes, that he he cuts off dead or dying parts to make us more fruitful. God takes away, prunes parts that are unfruitful. A variant reading of verse 3 is that he doesn't take away, but he lifts up. It was James Montgomery Boyce that suggested this when he said that actually the, 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 the husbandman, the vine dresser, he actually will find vines that are sort of not attached, and he, he washes them off, and he lifts them up, and they get tangled in again so that they can begin to grow and be fruitful. We, we know that there's also a judicial element here where every branch, according to verse 2, in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So whether he takes it away or whether he lifts it up, the idea is is that the the vine dresser is going to go about the business of making the branch fruitful. Merrill Tenney says that viticulture has, has two main elements. All dead wood must be ruthlessly removed because it's the dead wood that harbors the insects, the disease. It's the dead wood that causes the rod. Then he says, secondly, the living wood is also trimmed by the pruner's knife. Did, did you find it strange to hear about in verse 2, in every branch that bears fruit, he prunes? You mean I'm bearing fruit? Yeah, and he's going to cut me. He's going to wound me. Why? Well, verse 2 says that it may bear more fruit. Fascinating truth. If not for the trimming, if not for the pruning, if not for the cutting, you realize that we would not bear fruit. The vineyards of the early spring, says Tanny, are a collection of barren, bleeding stumps, but by the fall they will be luscious with grapes. Isn't that fascinating to think about? God wanting us to be so vital in our connection with his son, Jesus Christ, that he will cut away parts that do not belong, that should not be there, so that we would have a real connection. Sometimes when God prunes us, we might even feel as though he's being cruel. Think about it. We have to bleed sap if we're going to produce fruit. It is this mysterious divine formula that those who suffer the most most often produce the most fruit. Is that not strange? Oh, how we struggle against that. God allows us to be bruised and cut. Because he hates us? Because he's a cosmic killjoy? No. So that we would depend entirely on him, that we'd well recognize our weakness, our frailty, and our limits. Think about this small group of men that Jesus is teaching. He's been loving them, instructing them, teaching them. For three years he's been doing that. And yet they are not exempt from trauma. Only John, who wrote this gospel, is going to die anywhere near naturally. He'll die as a political prisoner in exile on the Isle of Patmos. But all the other disciples die cruel, violent death. The men that turned the ancient world right side up. I mean, do you think he doesn't love them and care for them? We know that he does. But to sense that idea that you're going to trust in me, my grace is sufficient for you, that would be part of the agenda here. The branch never stops being the branch, even when it has barren periods, and the patient vine dresser will keep trimming. He will not weary of his work to call forth a kind of potent fruitfulness. Bruce Wilkerson moved into a rural area near... An old farmer, in early spring, Bruce saw the old man in overalls with a huge set of shears hacking off loads of grape branches. They were heaping up, and the, the vine looked downright barren. And so Bruce had to ask him, Hey, man, don't you like grapes? The old farmer says, I love them. He knew that Bruce didn't understand his work as he sliced away Finally, the old farmer said, well, son, we can either grow ourselves a lot of beautiful leaves filling up this whole fence line, or we can have the biggest, juiciest, sweetest grapes that you and your family have ever seen. We just can't have both. For some of us, when it comes to the way in which we look, live, grow, Externally, it looks really good. I mean, we're green and leafy and we look vital. We're just not producing anything. The, the character of Christ, which is supposed to be what we're about, we're far from that mark. But we look so very vital. Here's God, the vine dresser, laboring to bring out of the branches as much fruit as possible the vine's going to produce fruit, it's going to have to be maintained, cultivated, cut, and pruned. We know this from Hebrews, that those children whom he loves, he disciplines, he corrects, he limits. If the vineyard, and if the vineyard of this local church is going to produce any fruit, it will mean that we recognize that God is at work in us, even limiting us. Even allowing us to be wounded and hurt. Even allowing us to go through traumatic seasons. Fruit, of course, from the text, represents good works. It represents the character of the vine, Jesus Christ, on display in us. And notice the flow of the text. It is from no fruit, verse 2, to fruit, verse 2, to more fruit, verse 2, and finally to much fruit, verse 5. That's the plan of the vine dresser. But what's what's that mean in terms of in everyday life? This means that just as Jesus Christ, as a young boy, obeyed his parents, we're called upon to obey our parents. This means that in his role as carpenter, he was fair and honest and industrious, and so we should be at work as well. This means that during his ministry years, we're left with this record of his love, his concern, and his interest for the lost, and that must be what we are about. It means that we're rightly attached to him. People see Jesus Christ in us. We become bread, salt, light, water, life. This even means that Christ's death is a call for us to follow, and that means dying to self which is the challenge for many of us. But you'll notice that there is this call by God from John 15 to vital attachment, abide, dwell, stay. Stay there, stay under, stay with. Secondly, this. What are the blessings of this vital attachment? If the chapter begins with, understanding the relationship of us to jesus christ it goes beyond that to understanding our relationship to the world that jesus christ loves so what are the blessings of this vital attachment john 15 7 to 11. well first of all this given to us in verse 7 if you abide in me and my words abide in you you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you one of the vital blessings and the benefits of vital attachment is that God hears our cries that there's an intimate relationship that God is mindful of us because we are so very mindful and so much in love with him Jesus encourages his men to remain in him and his truth and as they do that their prayers will be heard to, to put on more and more of the character of Jesus Christ brings them closer and closer to the father Another blessing that comes from this attachment, found in verse 8. Not only is prayer answered, but God is glorified. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. The idea that that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but that you're not interested in the character of Christ, you're not interested in the gift of Christ, you're not interested in the, the glory of the Lord, it just doesn't square with the passage. It's not enough to simply say you're a Christian. There is this vital fruit that proves that we belong to him. There is the glory, the the doxa, the brightness, and the brilliance of God that is glorified in us. There's a passage that goes hand in hand with this that I think is helpful to us. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm beginning to read at verse 12. Paul writing to the saints in corinth says this now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold silver precious stones wood a straw each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is if anyone's work which he has built on it endures he will receive a reward if anyone's work is burned he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved, yet so so as through fire. This idea that the way that we serve and the motive of our serving, what's behind what we do, that's very much on display here, Is, is God glorified by our service. Is God glorified by the way in which we seek to produce fruit before the watching world? Another truth that comes to the fore in John 15 verses 9 to 10 as the father loved me Jesus says to his men I also have loved you abide in my love and if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love and again and again we hear that word abide stay stick don't move hang on don't let go We recognize that one of the blessings of this vital attachment is that God's love becomes motivational for us in our lives. That There's there's the wonderful, contagious activity of God's people. We're doing more and more of what he wants us to do. Brothers and sisters, we're standing on the cusp of this new year. It's a great time for us to think about how we served, cared for, loved people last year. And for some of us, it makes us cringe. Because if the truth be known, and it is known by him, we did not serve very well. We did not love very well. Oh, he struggled to get out of the way. We we sensed all too often a kind of smothering absorption with self. And so to hear at this dawn of a new year, Pleading that God would give us 2020 vision about things that are important and basic and foundational. And Father loved me, I also have loved you. So you go out and love. Christian life is not rocket science. It is so basic. We love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he gives us the ability to love other people. And that's part of the challenge for us: to be motivated by the very character of Jesus Christ and put it on display in a broken, hurting, sin-cursed world. And we have this final blessing given to us as we're firmly and vitally attached to the vine. It's given to us in verse 11. Here, here, Jesus again saying this to his men. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. It's interesting to hear a verse like this in the context in which it is spoken he's about to go away he's about to depart he's about to be the slaughtered lamb who lays down his life for our sins and he talks about joy on the evening before his crucifixion it's fantastic you have this sense that this is a this is a a man who's who's on a totally different level the trauma that he's about to endure, even the separation, the, the forsakenness that he's about to engage in on our behalf. And he's talking here about joy, my joy remaining in you and your joy being full. Surely, brothers and sisters, this is a, a dynamic truth. Christ is calling his followers as a means of joy and celebration. Sometimes it seems so discordant. It seems so odd for us to think about believers being people of joy. And by joy, I don't mean happiness in the sense of beneficial circumstances. I mean joy, something bubbling up deep from within. The joy that Christ has for his offspring, the fullness of joy, part of our relationship to our Savior. This is not mere excitement. This is the joy of the Lord. This is the strength that God gives to his people. It's being conscious that we walk in his footsteps and wh- that we enjoy his applause. Joy is a sense of his presence. No matter how difficult things might be, no matter how rough things might be, to know the joy of the Lord is our strength. I finished reading this past week, Master and Commander by Patrick O'Brien. It was loaded with sailing ship jargon that was way over my head. But I did understand enough to appreciate some of the story of Captain Jack Aubrey. In, In one scene, there's a flag that's flying on the ship of the fleet, And it symbolizes that the admiral was on that ship, that the admiral was on board. And I thought about that because in light of this verse, this idea that that joy would be a part of the fruit of our lives, that God is very interested in the serious business of joy in us. I remember as a kid singing all these camp songs during the summertime, and there was this one song that spoke about that if the king was in residence— that there was a flag flying high over the castle of my heart. And it's the same concept. There is something about Christian joy that is essential to us in our walk with the Lord. And so as we think about John 15 and we think about what it means to serve and we think about our connection, there is the promise of an abundant joy. And I don't know where you're at, what you're going through, what has been the struggle of your heart this past week, But I do know this, when we are vitally attached to King Jesus, the result is a kind of joy that the world cannot take away. Even as we come to the table and we come to another set of symbols, we come to renew our vows, we come to ground zero, we come to home base, we operate from joy. The joy that we know because we've been forgiven father thank you for our time in your word thank you for this ancient passage teach us train us equip us convict us humble us instruct us we ask Father, i pray for your people today i pray that there might be more and more joy more and more hope more and more glory more and more prayer more and more love and we ask all of this and this Name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. I'll ask the brothers as they come and we prepare to celebrate for a few moments together the table of the Lord. I'm reading again from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul, writing to the church of Corinth, says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 28 talks about a season of examining ourselves. I hope that that's already happened for the church last evening and this past week. But there's a part of corporate confession that I'd like to make a part of our services in this coming year and as we quiet ourselves and still ourselves, I'm praying that that God would would make us mindful of the great price that was paid for our rescue. In coming to the bread, we see it representative of the body of Christ. In coming to the cup, we see it representative of the blood of Jesus Christ. Taken together, visual images of the life that was given for us so that we could live. A price that was paid for us so that we could be right with God. And as we gather together month by month as a local assembly, I pray that our hearts would be tuned and turned towards him. But I'd like to begin with a corporate confession of sin as we gather this morning. Almighty and merciful Father, we're thankful that your mercy is higher than the heavens, wider than our wanderings, deeper than all our love. Forgive our careless attitudes towards your purposes, our refusal to relieve the suffering of others, our envy of those who have more than we have, our obsession with creating a life of constant pleasure, our indifference to the treasures of heaven, our neglect of your wise and gracious law. Lord God, help us to change our way of life so that we may desire what is good. Love what you love and do what you command through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, would you spend a few moments in silent confession together with me? Father God, I thank you that you've given to us this table of remembrance and reflection and stillness. Surely, Lord God, we moderns are in desperate need of quiet. Father, I pray you'd hear our cries. I pray that your people who walk with you not in perfection, but in forgiveness, I pray that you would address our hearts with these grand pictures and truths we see again this morning jesus christ lifted up on the cross of calvary we marvel again that you could love us as you do knowing all that you know about us i pray lord god that as we eat this bread that you would strengthen us not merely physically but spiritually dynamically we pray lord that in these quiet moments You would help us to hear from you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen. Father, for the cup now, we thank you. Pray for spiritual vitality. We think of grapes crushed. Pouring out fruit. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us. We understand the the ransom price paid for our souls. We thank you, Lord God, that you, the invisible God, has been made visible in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray now that you would help us to make him visible. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In the same manner he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me amen god's word tells us that after christ and his disciples supped together they sang a hymn and they went out would you turn with me in your hymn books to 210 Jesus paid it all. We'll stand together and sing stanzas three and four. Two hundred mm, and ten. I wash my garments white in the blood of calvary's land jesus paid it all all to hear my own sin had left a crimson stain washed it white as snow and then before the throne i stand in him complete Jesus died my soul to save my life.